Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to the political party. As we hurtle towards polling day on May the 6th, today's guest is the Conservative candidate for Mayor of London, Sean Bailey. Before we come on to that, I want to start by saying a big thank you to everyone who came to the Tony Blair event this week. It's the first time I've done a streaming event. It was an absolute pleasure. It was so much fun. And always, it's great to have a guest that you can do the light and shade with. Um, and obviously his work on COVID-19 has been Incredible, highly influential, the stuff he's done on the vaccine. And I thought all that stuff about vaccine hesitancy was really interesting and some really funny moments as well. So thank you to those of you that came. It was a, it was a real pleasure. And hopefully we can do some more of those in the future. A big thank you as well to news that broke uh, this week. Um, Mace magazine, which is a political magazine, did a list of the uh, top 50 political podcasts. And the political party, this very show, was placed at number one which I'm very, very grateful for, very surprised by. Um, but thank you to Ian Dale, who compiled that list, whose own podcast for the many is superb, the one he does with Jackie Smith. If you haven't heard it, look it up. Um, but it's always nice when other people mention it um, and when people leave nice reviews on iTunes, which, of course, you can do. But um, to be placed at the top is very, very cool. So um, thank you to all of you that listen, because without you, people wouldn't know about this podcast. And thank you to Mace Magazine. Thank you to Ian uh, for being so kind. Oh, and while we're talking about events, of course, as well as the Tony Blair streaming event that happened this week, there are live events. The political party is returning to the stage in May and June in the West End. So on the 24th of May, I'm at the Garrick Theatre with Peter Mandelson and Saeed Avasi. On the 25th of May, I'm at the Garrick Theatre with Keir Starmer and Andrea Leadsom. And on the 2nd of June, it was meant to be at the Garrick, but it's now at the Vaudeville, which is just around the corner. I'm on with Jess Phillips and Esther McVeigh. So three amazing lineups in the West End. Tickets for those are going very, very fast. You can get them at mattford.com slash live. Uh, but understandably, three amazing lineups and the tickets are going quickly. So if you want to go to those, buy your tickets now. Anyway, on to today's guest, Sean Bailey. Now, this is one of the many reasons I love doing this podcast is you really get to know someone better over an hour than you do through social media or what you see on the news. And Sean Bailey is an almost completely different character to the one that I'd imagined he was based on social media. He has led a phenomenal life. And it's a life that could have turned out very, very differently. And his personal political philosophy is really interesting. You can see where it comes from. And I I kind of I don't want to give anything away, but he's a really fascinating individual with a really clear view of the world and a particular sort of drive. Now, everyone has their own drive based on their own upbringing, their own experiences, their own setbacks, their own successes. But Sean is a really unique guest. And there are times in this where it's really inspirational. And I don't want to say anything more, um, but it was really good talking to him over an hour because, and again, I don't want to use this to say, oh, isn't this podcast great? But one of the reasons I love making it 
is you do get more of a sense of the person than you do in traditional media or on social media. So anyway, I won't go on anymore. Sit back, relax and enjoy. Delighted to be joined by Sean Bailey, the Tory candidate for Mayor of London. Sean, first things first, are you enjoying the experience of standing for mayor? First things first, I'm the Conservative candidate for Mayor of London. Let's get it right. Um, am I enjoying it? Absolutely. It's been, a, it's been a long haul. It's been two and a half years that I've been in this position. It's great fun for two reasons in particular. One, you get to meet fabulous people. I've met so many good people along the way. Not all who share my political views, but definitely all who are willing to express an opinion. And two, my mum's proud of me. So <laughs> if whilst my mum's proud of me, I'm heading in the right direction. So yes, definitely. So do you not like the word Tory? Should I use conservative from now on? It, it, look, I, I'm, I'm not too bent out of shape about it. But for me, I'm, I want to be conservative. This is about a, a modern version of, of politics, of the party. I don't know how well you've been following me, but I'm constantly getting in, in trouble for not being a slick politician, but I don't want to be. I gave up trying to do that ages ago. I want to be an authentic person. And part of that for me is carrying my own baggage, not, not carrying everybody else's baggage, if, if you see what I'm saying. Yeah. And what's the experience like of trying to win London as a Conservative? Obviously, Boris Johnson has done it before and he won two terms as Mayor of London. But people might say in post-Brexit, Britain, London is seen as Remainer Central. It's seen as this, you know, more liberal, it's the liberal heartbeat of the UK. What's it like trying to win London as a Conservative after Brexit? I'd say two things, I think, to start off with. Firstly, all elections are fought in unique circumstances. So since I've been selected, I've had European elections, leadership elections, general elections, Brexit, um, Corona, and now Prince Philip has passed away. So I've had a very unique set of circumstances. And all of that has changed what it means to be a Conservative in London, indeed, in the whole country. I would say this, though, it's coming my way, my way as an individual and my way as a sort of political badge. I think that the country is starting to, to ask itself some serious questions and the Conservatives are better at answering them. I, I've watched Labour wring their hands very seriously about can they appeal to their ultra upper class, middle class London, you know, southeast London, um, England elite and how can they speak to the working people? Because it's it's no doubt in anybody's mind, it's working people who now vote Conservative. So our coalition is broader. There's a lot of those people in London and I say that because you talk about Brexit, Londoners are no longer talking about Brexit. They're talking about all other things. They're talking about where's their housing. They're talking about why are the streets of London so dangerous. They're talking about what happened to TfL long before they talk about Brexit. I agree with that. But I guess what I mean is that Brexit is seen as, you know, shorthand for a set of values that London is out of step with perhaps other parts of the country with and certainly out of step with the Conservative Party with. It really depends where you sit. So if you come from a community like mine, or yesterday I was with the Bangladeshi Patriot Association, um, they have a very different view. So they'll say that um, Brexit and where we are has opened us up to the world. I, I, I'm, a, I'm a son of an immigrant, aren't I? I'm, I'm a, of Jamaican descent. My, my grandparents came here in the Windrush. And that probably wouldn't be possible while we're members of, of Europe. And I think so. there's a very big, there's a different coalition and a different view set on looking at um, Brexit. And the other thing, of course, the value set, you could argue, is represented better by opening up to the world. So I talk about the Bangladeshi Caters Association and their big deal is can they get authentic chefs? Well, now they can. So the, the world looks very different. And like I say, if you speak to Londoners, what they say on the doorstep is this. When will you get my 8,000 extra police officers, Sean? They say, Sean, how are you going to pay for those 100,000 homes you promised? They're much more interested in that sort of 
London are hustlers, aren't they? We're all hustlers in London. Anyone in London? <laughs> is that right? Every <laughs> single Londoner? <laughs> every Londoner, every Londoner is an entrepreneur. Every Londoner is a hustler. We're always interested in hustling for our communities and for ourselves. I maintain that. I don't know. I mean, it's a sort of Dell boy, only fools and horses. No, view no, of no, no, no. It's a modern version. We're all looking to, to go, look, let me, put, let me put it to you this way. I came from a really poor background. And what's interesting about my background, I think, is that we were all poor, innit? It wasn't like I was somebody special, but we were always constantly hustling to move ourselves forward. And not in an individual sense, in a community sense. All, I, I set up a charity and I did youth work and I started out on my own, but I certainly didn't finish in that place. So I started out with, I've got to help these young guys. Look, I went away to university. I was very fortunate. that When I say I went away to university, I went to Elephant and Castle. Let's get clear. <laughs> I didn't go that far away. I was in Elephant and Castle in South Bank Uni. But when I sort of was back in my local area, people I know had been murdered. Someone I know had been involved in a murder. And I thought I know enough about my community to divert lots of people away from this lifestyle so I got involved in it and I and I started on a, on a on a youth project and then I was able in the long run to start my own but in the beginning when I was working for somebody else I used to take some of my spare time and I used to just march in a job center and pick up the cards and march down and, and you know hand them out on the high street talk to the boys I knew some of them and the ones I did and quite frankly I just walk over and introduce myself and that led to other people joining me. And at first they were joining me to get jobs, to just have somewhere to hang. We used to hang in the local car park, which was, um, I could tell you a story or two about that. But after a while- <laughs> Please do. After a while, some of the older lads joined me. They were like, yeah, Sean, I've just been in a job set. Now here's the cards, you hand them out. I mean, they were trying to help. And that's what I mean by hustlers. They weren't just trying to help themselves, they're hustling for the whole community. And that was part of the inspiration because I remember I was unemployed for a long time and walking down to Hammersmith to sign on because I, I live in Neville Grove, walking down to Hammersmith is quite a walk. And sometimes it used to get to me. And I, I just wanted to, I was very fortunate. I had a mother who was behind me. I'd been part of the army cadets. I was doing gymnastics. So I had the notion of focusing. So I focused on getting out of that situation, but I realized it isn't always easy. So I tried to help people out of it. And that's why I started with a job club and then I moved on to other things as well. People might be surprised, given your background, that you chose the Conservative Party. Everybody says that, and then I point out to them three very important things. You cannot win elections in this country unless working class people vote for you. That is a statistical fact. The Conservatives have won many, many, many more elections, no matter which level you put them, than the Labour Party. So I am a very typical um, conservative in that Tory, let's use your words, Tory, in that I am working class. The second thing as well, it is my core belief that poor communities need right-wing, self-propelled, you know, self-belief politics. The, the real thing why I'm not on the left, and let's be clear, I do not think the left are wrong about everything. I don't. I, I don't. But where, where I think they are wrong is this dependency thing, making us dependent. I mean, Corbyn said it, only he can release the talent in the black community. My mother was furious. She said, what does he think I've been doing for the last 70 years? Do you just what I mean? If you don't believe you can move forward, then you're right. You can't. And, and I think I think Tory politics has that more in its in its DNA, things around family, respecting people's religions, all that kind of stuff, you know, get, get, get on with it. And I think the third piece I'd say is say as well is when you 
when your community does things for itself, it retains the knowledge, it retains the wealth, and that's your inheritance to pass down. I don't think the, the union-based, um, large state-based ideology helps your community have things to pass on. And remember, I'm not just talking about money, I'm also talking about a wealth of, of confidence, a wealth of knowledge, a wealth of experience. I think this is a, a better way to do it, and that's why I'm on the, on the centre-right rather than the, the left. But to be clear, I think left-wing politics does have something to offer. And how do you feel then as the, as the grandson of the Windrush generation at the way that generation was treated by the Conservative government? But again, such a big myth. It was treated like that by all of government. My mother said to me, Sean, this problem's been coming for the last 18 years. My mother had been aware of it for 18 years because she went back to Jamaica, had to renew her passport and then had the conversations. And she said there was Labour MPs, for instance, like David Lammy, who made a lot of noise, but they also voted for it. Everybody voted for it and put us in that situation. Now, I'm not a lunatic. I'm not trying to tell you that the Conservative Party's relationship around race has been perfect. I think the mistake we made is saying we don't see colour. I think, you know, and everybody's an individual. And that's true, of course, to a certain extent. But if you've come from a background of any colour, if you're Pakistani, if you're Jewish, if you're black, that's very important to you. And it has it, it, it has changed the way you've traversed through the world. So you do want people to recognise it. And I think that's the change that's happening in the party. And that's the change that I want to be part of. I mean, a lot of people will have sympathy with what you're saying about large state solutions and trade union based politics, although, as you're right to acknowledge that it has its merits. But people might also say that doesn't necessarily mean you have to be a conservative. You know, historically, people might look at the way, um, you know, British societies operated under conservative governments, the response to the murder of Stephen Lawrence and other things, whether the Conservative Party historically has been sufficiently animated about unlocking the talent in black communities and breaking down the traditional establishment, not just on terms of race, but on gender and class as well. Not being left wing doesn't necessarily mean you have to be a conservative. I mean, do, do you think the conservatives have a proud history on race and class? I'd, uh, for me, I'd say, yes, they do. I'd argue that the, the, the PR of it all, the Labour Party is one, but if you look at the, the actual who's done what, I think you'll see actually be quite surprised at what the Conservative Party's done. But the most important principle for me is about delivery. If your community is poor, why? And who's delivering those changes? The times that we've risen, the most people out of poverty in this country has absolutely been under Conservative governments. That is a fact. Every single Labour government, I think, bar one, has left behind more unemployment than it found. That's important. My community, any poor community, black or white, up and down the country, you could be from Newcastle, you could be from Newquay, or you can be from London. You don't want to live on welfare. You want to live by your own means. And that means employment. That means a vibrant, a vibrant economy. And that's something that we are significantly better at. That's a fact. That's there, must a fact. Be, there must be people that you grew up with that say, Sean, what are you doing in the Conservative Party? People you grew up with in Labrador Grove must be saying it. People say it to me all the time. If it's someone from literally from the hood, then I win the argument straight away. Because for them, there's much, I don't have to explain so much of where I'm at. They understand. What I do is remind them of how I take the route that I've been on and they get it. If it's someone who sort of shares my my sort of upbringing, you know, my, my, my community. Like I spoke to a guy from Wolverhampton, black guy from Wolverhampton. You could imagine he had a lot to say. <laughs> he had a lot to say, but we had such a warm conversation. And it's not like he said, I'm going to join you in the Conservative Party, but he said, I do see where you're coming from. And that's, that's been my journey through life. So I've always been sort of 
at the vanguard of a change. I've always been able to step out and be a little bit brave and, and, and take things on. And, and I just think this is another version of, of that. And I mean, look, he and I had a big talk about housing and you talk about house, house, who's get housing. And I said, okay, but what do you actually want? And he said, well, of course I want to own my place, but that's never going to happen. I said, it will, if you have a conservative mayor. My plan is to build 100,000 homes for 100,000 pounds and sell them, yeah, with shared ownership model. He said, okay. I said, no Labour politician is offering you that. So how do you get to this point? You get this point for a Conservative mayor. And he was like, oh, I see your point. And, and I don't get, again, I, I'd love to tell you I persuaded him to vote for me, right? And even if I did, it would probably be on a more on an emotional level, but he could see where I was coming from. And, and that, for me, is an important step. People don't change overnight. I need to lay down the, the, the path as well. I mean, it sounds great, 100,000 homes for 100,000 pounds. Delivering that might be significantly more problematic. Absolutely not. Let's be clear. We have over four billion pounds to do that. The money is there. The only thing that's stopping us having that is the political will. Sadiq Khan's plans is to build 80% for rent. I'm going to build a significant number for sale. Why? Because that's what Londoners tell me they want. The greatest thing about having an extension of a year to the election, I've been able to listen to people for a much longer period of time. 87% of Londoners want to own their own home. That's people who rent. How do you help that happen? You give them shared ownership to give them a much smaller step, a lower step to get on that housing ladder. And that's that's what I'm doing. My plan will create more homeowners. So each plan will create many more landlords. But you also do need to cater for people who can't afford to buy their own home or, or people who don't want to own their own home. Renting this- in London is extortionate. Exactly. But let's be clear, this is an addition, not, 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 not a swap. So I'll continue to provide fully social homes. Remember, you're talking to someone who was born in a council house. I was homeless for the entirety of my 20s. I sofa served. I cannot tell you how horrible that is. Sitting on a bus. I remember one night time, I kind of had nowhere to go. So I got on a 220 bus and I specifically did that because I used to get on a 220 bus to go to school. So I kind of knew the route. I knew basically when I'd be getting to the end of the route. So I got on a bus. And I remember going, I'd been on it for so long that I'd been past Fulham Palace Road, which was where my old school was, Henry Compton. And I was just waiting for someone to call me with somewhere to stay. Do you know what I mean? And, and that, that, that has been my experience of housing in London. I absolutely get it. So this isn't instead of social housing. This is as well as, and here's the key point. When you do housing like this as well, you prevent more, you prevent a massive amount of people being in the situation I was in. And you also help people who are paying so much in rent because whatever happens, uh, my shared ownership home would be cheaper than the equivalent fully rented home. Plus, you'd have equity because you'd own some of it, at least 10 percent. And that's why I want to do it, to give people a start, a fresh start, a, a new direction of travel that, they, that, that I simply didn't have. I, I, I got lucky. I worked. I had friends and family who, um, who put me up for years. I, I went to my auntie Norma right? and she said to me, what are you doing? I said, I'm looking for places. Da, 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 da. She said, why don't you come and stay with me? I, do you know what I said to my auntie Norma? Oh, I'll be a week or two. Do you know how long I was there? Nearly 18 months. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Th- th- that's how hard it was to get anything going in London. You know, I literally, in my mind, believed I'd be there for a week or two. I was there for 18 months. And I want to, you to remember, I had a job that whole time. So I understand what it is to be in London and trapped in a poor housing situation. And I'm determined to turn that around. You mentioned Sadiq Khan there. Have you found him as an opponent? I, I, I think he needs to chill out. He takes. He seems so pretty chill to me. He seems pretty chill. You should have been on. You should have been on the hustings last night. He, he, he mentioned my name about eighty times, and then said I was obsessed with him, which was quite funny. I, I, I look. 
I don't take these things personally. I think, you know, you're the mayor of London, you're, or you're trying to be, just get on with it. I, I, I don't take it personal. He, he, um, he spends a lot of his time trying to belittle me and that kind of stuff, but I, I, I just don't bite. It doesn't work. I, I mean, I come from a place where people pull knives on you. So someone being snarky, I, 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 just, I just roll on by. I've got important things to do. But you're both attacking each other. I mean, I, I guess that's the nature no, 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 of politics. No, no, no. Let's, no, no, let's get this clear. I'll always attack his record. I'll attack his record at length. He attacks me. There's a difference there. You know, he, your record is there to be attacked. Your policies are there to be attacked. That's actually one of the benefits of our system. All of your ideas are tested. That's not a problem. There's a difference when you make it personal. That's that's all I'm saying. I don't attack him. I haven't got time for that. He seems to enjoy attacking me. Um, and how are you finding the experience of being the underdog? Because... He's polling way out in front. He's got the benefit of incumbency. He had a profile before he was mayor of London. He's popular across the UK. He's popular in London. You know, he's a photogenic guy. People like him. He must be quite a difficult opponent in that regard. It's definitely difficult, but all political campaigns are difficult. But life has been difficult. Nobody's ever handed me anything. Believe you me, I've been in much tougher situations than I am in now. Definitely so. I've got a great big team on my side. There's about 49 of us and we're pushing and we're getting it done. And I tell you what, the conservative activists in London have embraced me big time. I am their guy. I feel very special because of that. Thank you to anybody listening who's one of my activists. And, And I get on and I do it. But for me, this isn't about me. It really isn't about me. This is about Londoners. This is about my view that people should have an independent life full of choices that they made for themselves, not somebody forced on them. And I'll just keep doing it. Um, and the other thing I'd say, I'm not sure how popular he is. When, when we're going around London, people are very upset about things about, like LTNs or the state of TFL's finances or the fact that he's delivered less than half the promises he made. I think we have made a real dent by focusing on his record. I think that's why he's focusing on me because he can't defend his record. So every time I have a conversation with someone who's an ardent Labour Labour um, supporter, they try to go off about the government. I said, but this isn't about the government. This is about London. This is about the nineteen billion pounds we have to spend on ourselves in London and what we do with that. And they, and he has no record that he can defend. It's an interesting point, though. Is it harder for you having a Conservative government because even though Sadiq Khan is Labour and in charge of London, the public perception is, well, you guys are in charge in Westminster, therefore you know, you're the establishment to be railed against. I think what I'd say, how I deal with the government, the government's like the weather. I can't do anything about it. I I can either enjoy it or get an umbrella. That's pretty much where I am with with the government. The the best thing about the government, I think, is I've been able to say to them, there's things you're going to have to do for London. And Sadiq Khan has lost the trust of the civil service and the government, so he can't have the conversations that I'm able to have. So, for instance, he went in a COBRA meeting which is the highest level of security this country has. He came out of the meeting and sent a tweet about the details of the meeting. I mean, the civil servants are horrified because now they can't have private conversations with him. He went to a negotiation about TFL and then the government sent him a letter and he made the letter public for political reasons. So he's lost that trust, which I think is, is, is detrimental to delivering a deal for London. And what it's meant is it's meant that I think that certain ministers have been a bit more open with me just because they have nowhere else to be open, if, if, if you see what I'm saying. And I think if, if you if you want to do for London, you have to separate your sort of personal desires away from delivering for Londoners because his delivery has been poor.
Uh, now, I, I don't know the details of those uh, apparent leaks, so, that, so I'm sure he would say... They're all say out he's... in the public arena. I'm saying nothing that will get you in trouble. They're all out in the public arena. That's how I found about them. I read them in the paper. Let's be clear. Well, I guess the other point is this government is kind of known for leaking against itself, you know, whether it's oh. Michael Gove or, or Dominic Raab or, or Dominic Cummings. And that's like, if you want to leak against yourself, get on with it. But you can't leak against the London. You can't leak against the residents of London. You can't leak against our best interests. The best thing about being mayor of London, you're effectively independent. I used to be special advisor to the prime minister, to David Cameron. And he constantly used it. It's a bit of a joke between me. He used to say, what do you think, Sean? Because I always had an opinion on whatever's going to happen. And don't get me wrong. They didn't always take my opinion. But he encouraged me to fight my corner. That's why you're mayor of London, because you can fight your corner, but you've got to do it in a grown-up way. Because ultimately, if you don't, all Londoners lose, and that's not right. You mentioned your, your upbringing earlier in, in Labbrook Grove, black working class, and you mentioned your experience of crime. Um, I wonder if any of the, you know, I guess I'm trying to pin down at what point you become politicised and what makes you choose the Conservative Party. Now, you, you talk about the Conservative Party's relationship with class but does that did that experience of crime that proximity to crime make you more conservative do you think definitely i, I think the two things happened separately so i became political much earlier than i became conservative if you see what i'm saying becoming political happened to me becoming conservative was a decision literally it was a decision and so what happened was i i'm a youth worker and i'm i was i was lucky my mum was really protective you know, really shoes protective. I've got an uncle called Dennis and uh, another one called Trevor who were kind of on top of me because I never grew up with my dad until much later on. And on top of me to keep me away from some of the worst elements of, of the street. But I couldn't avoid it because drug dealing, fights, gangs, all that stuff, it was just there. It was the norm. And what I always thought was, I don't like this. I just, I literally, I didn't like it. My, I did not like it if it was uncomfortable for me. So my mum didn't have to work that hard to pull me away. And then when she found me something else to do, army cadets initially, I threw myself into that. And I really enjoyed that. And then later on, I started gymnastics as well. And I, it was great because it broadened my horizons. It gave me somewhere else to be, which was really important. Because I watched people who were my peers, who were cleverer than me, more charming than me, just go down the wrong route and end up in prison, end up in jail. And I'll never forget the day that I, so I was going, I was going on a trip with cadets. That's right, because I was in my uniform and I bumped into one of our boys who'd just been released from prison. And he said to me, what are you up to? And I said, ah, oh, I'm going to Salisbury Plain. And I said, what are you up to? He said, I just come back from jail this morning. Do you know what I mean? And that's when I realised, like, my, I now have made a deliberate decision to go in a different direction. And, and that, for me, was, was a poignant moment. And then much later on, I've been doing youth work for a long time. I've been preaching to my, my young people. If you see an opportunity, grab hold of it and squeeze the pips out of it. You've got you to hustle for yourself. And, and my community, certainly the people around me, my job club, my youth work, really held on to that notion. And then I was at an event. And <laughs> so basically, I was at an event and Steve Hilton was there and he heard me speak. So he went back and told David Cameron, you've got to hear this young guy speak, this black guy. So you can imagine these two Tories turn up to an event. I'm there. I'm, I'm proper giving it the full, the full on Sean. You know what I mean? I'm giving it the full on Sean. Afterwards, David Cameron approaches me and he says, great speech, exactly what we're looking for. You should become a Tory candidate. 
and and I, I, you, I was a very different young man at the time. I want you to understand. I would literally that morning. I'd had a bit of a fisticuffs in the car park with a with a drug dealer who's trying to sell to one of my young members, and and he attacked him. So I had to step in between them. And then at the end of the day, someone's asking me, "Do I want to be a Tory MP?" And I use the word Tory, not not conservative. <laughs> and you can imagine my response. I thought it was hilarious. I literally said to them, "Don't call us. We'll call you." I thought it was hilarious. I really did. And I went home, and that was the end of that. Then I told some of the boys in my in my um, job club the next morning and they were furious because they were saying, you spend all that time preaching to us, Sean. This opportunity comes along and you don't grab it and squeeze the pips out of it. And I, I was a little bit embarrassed. One of them, one of them, his mum came in to see me and she really let me have it. So I thought, you know what? I'm going to do this to show working class people that we can be involved in whatever we want to be involved in. And then, so I wrote some stuff for the paper as well, for this um, court, Centre for Policy Studies and all the rest of that, I wrote some stuff. And all three parties then approached me and said, do I want to be a member? And I'd already spoken to Cameron, so that was one. I had someone from the Lib Dems and someone from the local Labour Party. And I looked at it and I just thought, I, I do believe in marriage. I, I, I do believe people should, should, should follow the religion or the, the traditions of their parents. I do think you should work for a living if you are physically able to do so, mentally and physically able to do so. And these all feel like core Tory values. And for my particular thing for the black community, we need our nuclear families to be more regular, more strong. And that's a strong Tory value as well. So I got involved in that. I didn't actually think they would select me. I didn't think I'd end up as a special advisor to the prime minister and other ministers, but I am proud that I practiced what I preached. Because when I go back to my community, you asked the question early on, when people who I brought up with, grew up with, asked me the question, they remember that I always used to preach this way. And they're also very pleased. I haven't gone and turned to something else. I'm Sean in the Conservative Party, not the Conservative Party in Sean. So it's not just that it was... Because at the start, it sounded like quite almost a kind of cold, not calculated in the wrong way, but a kind of pragmatic decision that, well, the Tories are more likely to be in government. So if you want to change the world, you know, go with with who's in charge. Actually, it was also a reflection of your values that you held small C conservative values. Listen, I'm a church going, you know, I mean, married father of two. This is, you know, this is who I am. But they're compatible with other parties, too. But not 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 so much for me, because at the time, you, you've got to remember, you're talking about many years ago. And, and I think the left were talking about the black community as victims. The left would, 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 wouldn't help the black community face some of its tougher um, changes it needed to make. And I wanted to be part of being being at the vanguard of a community that was leading its own its own future. And that's where that came from. And what's most interesting for me, I've not regretted it since. I think the Labour Party has changed and left. I think they're two separate things sometimes. I think the Conservative Party's changed as well, but nothing to make me regret the decision. And that that moment where you're giving this speech and Steve Hilton and David Cameron turn up, I mean, it's like the sort of stories that bands tell when they got signed. You know, this is like Oasis being seen by Alan McGee in Glasgow. This is like... Yeah. You know, Tony Wilson seeing the Sex Pistols. This is kind of like almost you got signed at that moment. Yeah, well, look, I, I, I don't know how that works. I'm not a Sex Pistols fan. But all <laughs> of, they, they, they sought me out. And it, it was really, it was, for me, it, it was, it's much more of a big deal now looking back than it was at the time. For me, I was just rolling through the world. I was trying to keep my charity going. I, I, I had a new young baby. My baby was tiny. That was more of the issues in, in, in my personal life. But it's... I, I like to, I, I just want people to, to try. I, I, one of the things I used to say to the boys is, 
I will always back you if someone's been racist, if the police are after you, if schools are supporting you, but you have to demonstrate to me that you are trying. If you've tried and failed, then I'm on your side. If you're just complaining, what are we talking about here? And, and I just wanted to live a life where I had tried, and, and, and that was my way of trying. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. So many people have, well, I think most people have no experience at all of the allure of gangs and growing up in a community where people very close to you involved in a claustrophobic environment that is on your doorstep. Do you think there is a, a different world in which you could have easily got involved in that sort of life? 100%. All I have to do is look at the people around me who I loved and admired and where they've gone. Sometimes I think, but for the grace of God, there go I. I some days I, I know why I didn't go there. Other days, I'm not sure. And that's before you factor in things like drink and drugs. Unfortunately, my brother passed away two years ago now because he, he, effectively, well, he effectively drank himself to death. I have many friends who have um, taken all different kinds of substances, ruined their life and or died. It's what drove me. I used to work on a very big drug project called the Blenheim Project. And... The, the reason I ended up there is because I wanted to learn more about why a person become addicted. I wanted to learn more where drugs and, and, and crime cross, because there's a big crossover there. But to go back to your original question, I, 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 want, I want anybody listening to this, right? I want you to imagine the person you fancy the most in the world, admire the most in the world, or just love. And that could be your mum. Bear that in mind. I don't fancy my mum. <laughs> yeah, you know, no, I, I'll give you a spread of things. I'll you can fancy my mum if you like. No, 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 I don't. I'm giving you a spread of things, but what I'm trying to do is give you an emotional hook here. I want you to I want you to imagine the, the person who's the most dearest to you or you think is the coolest in the world, yeah, saying to you, come on, bruv, I've got a little manoeuvre. It's going to be safe. I'm going to look after you. And not once, not once a day, all the time and gently bringing you in, bringing you in. And every time you do something, absolutely making you feel wonderful about it. You're getting street cred. That's how you get sucked in. I had a young boy that I was working with, right? Lovely guy. I won't, I won't tell you his name. Lovely guy. He was one of the best. So charming, so slick. But if you had to have a fight, he was mean as a rattlesnake. And I said to him, he got arrested for drug dealing. He had a lot of drugs in his house and a lot of money. And the police scooped him up to come away. When he was released, I said to him, why did you get into drug dealing? And I expected him to tell me money. He never mentioned money once. You know he said to me, he said, Sean, I was popular. He said, everywhere I went, people were happy to see me. He said, Sean, I never bought a drink. I knew all the girls. He said, I was the man because I was a drug dealer. And that's another level. There's an emotional link sometimes to getting involved in crime. <clears throat> and when you use the word claustrophobic, 
that that encapsulates it's your entire view of the world is different and that is important and that is what we are railing against that's what we are fighting against and and that is complicated because it's an emotional hook so for you what's the reason you didn't end up there is it your mum was it being part of the army cadets is it a mixture of a number of things I think it's definitely a mixture of a number of things. If I was to put my finger on it, I'd say this. My mum stroke family, like my uncles were streetwise. They knew who shouldn't be a friend of yours and would make strides to make that happen. That's one. My mum was determined for me to do things. That's two. That's the external factors. The internal factor was I was a small geeky boy. When people were committing crimes, I kind of really wanted to build my Lego model. I was massively into to radio control cars. I, you know, I'm the kind of fella I'd focus on something. So they were going to, to, to beat up people from the gang across the road. I really wanted to build my remote control car. <clears throat> my mum realized that if she could get my time filled, I would focus on that. Army Cadets was so, so wonderful for me. I, I, be, I stayed a member for 14 years. I've, I've recently become a member again, and I'll go into that, but, and that gave me, A, something physical to do, and B, I was part of a team. The wonderful thing about the uniformed youth groups, no matter what your skill is or your personality type, they have a way of developing that, and they put you in a team and you have real value, and, and young people are very well aware of when they are really valued, and I just love that. And later on, I found gymnastics, which so broadened my horizon. I was mixing with people outside of my community. I was I did international trips, which just blew my mind. And those all of those factors sort of they 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 got together to save me. And what the thing they really saved was my education as well. My education was less relevant to me until that happened. And I didn't do well in school. But being around all the girls in in gymnastics who were they talked about universities if it was natural it kind of got it in my mind and 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 forward I was able to go there's it was a it was a coalition of things and I'd argue the single biggest thing was my mum but also it sounds like one of the things I might not have considered I thought well the army thing the thing you know um your mum family your own thing also the fact that you're a bit of a nerd seems to have saved you a bit what I cannot tell you I cannot tell you how like and, and what it did, it gave me different friendship groups. So this is going to sound a little bit strange. Massive Star Wars fan. And I'm I'm of the correct vintage to have seen Star Wars the first time round. No when way. New, when it was new. Yes, yes. How old are you? I'm, I'll be 50 in May. No way. Yeah, yeah, I'll be 50. Oh, my God. I've never been so shocked to hear someone's age in all my life. I've been born, I was born in 1971, May 5th, 1971. Oh, I mean, I look about 20 years older than you. I'm 38. Well, good. That's, again, it's a gift from my mum. Wow. What can I say? But yeah, but I, I was into Star Wars and it just meant I had a slightly different set of friends. We read the books, we collected comics. Um, and I, I, I have a love of anything radio controlled. I've built radio controlled <laughs> gliders, rockets, aeroplane. I'm currently now building a, a what's called a DLG glider. I'm building one now. I, I loved it. And that, sort of inquisitive childlike nature made me less cool or in some instances made me very cool. I I used to race BMX bikes. So the local bully boys kind of needed me to repair their bike. 
you know that that kind of stuff and it kind of meant that I got got left alone in, in, in some instances and I just I focused on those things because I enjoyed them and later on I went on to university and, and did my degree in engineering because I liked anything that had batteries in it any kind of technology that was me and that 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 geeked them I said I mean look when I started my youth project I started a comic shop I started a comic program to get young boys to read because they just wouldn't read and we read comics and magazines and we were able to boost their their reading age because of those things All my, I mean I have a massive comic collection because of that I started then and started collecting comics and still do it now so but it's it's one of the things I tell young people the reason older people are relaxed is because they know what makes them happy and I always say to young people try to find out what makes you happy what you know if you're anxious what makes you chill if you're bored, what makes you not feel bored? If you're sad, what makes you feel happy? Identify particularly positive things that make you feel happy and then throw yourself into it. So um, are you into drones and things? Yep, 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 yep. And, and, uh, because a lot of people see drones as a kind of nuisance. But is there a positive case for drones? I tell you the positive case for drones, particularly race drones. It's all about you. You learn to program. I mean, if you see the programming languages around drones, it, it incredible the technology, the transmission technology, all those kinds of things. Anything that inspires young people is a good thing. And I always use this is something I learned from running my job club. If you can inspire a young person, they will massively out, outperform your your hopes for them. You know, we push young people through school. The young people who do well in school, the ones who want to be there because they're inspired to have a goal. And, and drones is just one way of doing it. I mean, I've worked with younger children. Lego was a very good way of doing it. I used to work with a boy who wanted to be a gas engineer. So we got him, we paid for the course and all the rest of that. And now I speak to him, when I, he's not a young boy anymore, but he runs five different, he runs five engineers on site, for every site he works, that kind of thing. And he, he brings it back to the fact that me and him used to talk about, we used to talk about PCs and, and plumbing and all that stuff. We used to talk all the time. It's how can you inspire young people to, to go on? I mean, during a, when you're campaigning during a pandemic, you could have used all this tech. You could be leafleting by drone. You could just be doing like crop dusting London with your leaflets. Or I could have been annoying people and doing illegal things. It depends how you look at that, doesn't it? But look, it's like even now talking to you on Zoom. I got into Zoom straight away. I'm sitting here with my little camera set up and I fiddle and I, and I, and I, and I play around with it because it's, it's another way for me to connect with my own son. You know, I speak to my son. He's now into technical things because I'm into technical things. And it, it's inspired him to try to be much better at maths in school. You know, technical things, maths is very helpful. So he, he, he's gone that way. And that's why, you know, anything that your children like or you like, try to get them involved in it. We talked about gangs and the, and the attraction of them and the, and the personal strength required to, to not go down that route. There's another element of that, which is how society is policed and how the authorities deal with crime and people from different communities. Growing up as a young working class black man, how did you feel about the police? For me, the police were just over there. They were separate. They were the other. Um, I was fortunate in that I, where I didn't join our local gang, I had less time confronted by the police than maybe some of them would. If I've got friends, if you ask them about the police, they would start with hate and then go downwards from there. But for me, when I talk to people about the police in modern day London, I'm talking about 8,000 extra police officers because that's what we need to keep the streets safe. And I know people are worried about stop and search, but I will be doing it because stop and search saves lives. I've been a, a youth worker for years now and I've been with young people and I've been stopped to those young people and been searched and everybody's chilled out. And I know one or two of them are a bit, let, let, let's say handy. And I'm like, why are you so relaxed? And one of them said, yeah, I don't carry anything because you get stopped and searched. And obviously 
And that's right. And, and the decision not to carry anything makes him safer, makes us all safer. And there's ways that we can give the police better technology to do it better and better training as well. And all of those things are in my manifesto and I will do it. So for me, stop and search primarily is about saving lives. Because remember, we've had two record years in a row for homicide. We've had a 60% increase in knife crime and an 86% rise in robbery. And I always think if, if someone's robbed you, how many other people have they robbed? Who hasn't who haven't reported it how many times has that knife been shown to people who've just been terrified and not said anything so when people say to me are you worried about the police over policing absolutely but i say to them the police will have a black man who understands understands what it's like to be on the other side of that equation not only challenging them but also supporting them nobody wins if the police are too afraid to do their job they must retain some respect so they can keep law and order on the streets and what was your, did you have personal interactions with the police growing up? Were you stopped and searched? Oh, yeah. oh man, hundreds of times, definitely. But do you know what? I, I resigned myself to it being, being, being stopped and searched. And funny enough, I had an officer, we had two officers. One, I could, the kids call him Robocop, because if he chased you, he would catch you. Fact. He was just fitter than the rest of us. So we used to call him Robocop. But there's another copper, I can't remember his name, but he was a northerner, right? And obviously to young black kids in the middle of London, northerners are exotic, right? <laughs> he had a really white, broad northern accent, right? He was, he was exotic to us. And he would just speak to us. He'd be like, well, if I don't stop you, right, and someone pulls a chew on you, what are you going to do? And they were like, we were... Yeah, you kind of, I know I've got a point. He said that, but he would ask us questions. And the reason I bring him up, because he reminds me that good local policing, yeah, is a social mobility issue. He kept us safe. He kept us away from knives. So therefore we were able to go on and do all the things that ordinary children should be doing. We weren't dodging the local gang. We weren't telling lots of stories about people who've been stabbed who we don't know. Because if you speak to London children now, right, but certainly in particular areas of London, they are traumatized because so many people from their community have been stabbed, attacked, murdered. They live with murderers. They know people who have murdered people who are at large. They are terrified. We can't let that stand. That isn't right. So when someone tells me about no stop and search, I'm telling, I'm telling you're wrong. I want to reopen the 38 police stations closed by Sadiq Khan. That is why. So the police have a much more visible presence in our communities. It is important, particularly to the poorest communities and not just black communities, to all poor communities. But it has to be said, as a black Londoner, I'm four times more likely to be murdered than, than my neighbour. That is not right. When you're continually stopped and searched as a young black man, that must do something deep down. Emotionally, you must think, oh, come on, not again. It depends how it's done. And let's be clear, local police get a profile. They understand who they're dealing with. Now, racial profiling, completely wrong, but they get a personal profile. Like our local coppers would just wave at you. And you'd be like, yeah, 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 okay, fair enough. And you, and you, walk, you walk on. But today in London, today in London, when I speak to people, I was in Croydon probably probably about a year ago, maybe just before lockdown, it was literally just before lockdown, and I saw a big group of black boys getting stopped, and two in particular were being searched, and it, it is a little bit humiliating. Let's not pretend it's, it's a pleasant, it's not. But I was quite surprised at how laid back they were. So I went across the road, and I started chatting to him, and one of them was like, yeah, look, he's looking for weapons, bruv. And I said, then you've got a weapon, and he just looked at me and said, come on, come on now. So we, start, we started vibing, we started chatting. And he said, Sean, there's been so much madness up here, right? He said, I want them to find the weapons. I want them. 
And this is a young black boy. He's cool in ways that I've never been cool. Yeah. But he's also under threat in ways that, that people listen to his podcast simply and luckily for you cannot perceive. So when that copper said, was saying to him, we're looking for weapons, he just, he's like, okay, go for it. Go for it. Because in that area in particular, Croydon has had mad gang issues. So they want they want the weapons off the streets. It has to be done. I wish there wasn't another way. I wish, sorry, I wish there was another way, but people are dying on the streets of London. We have to do something about that. But do you worry about the relationship between the authorities and not just the police, the, the relationship between the state, between power and and the black community and, and minority communities in, in the UK, that people feel like they're treated differently? People feel that this doesn't happen to white people, that, that that sets them on a course, perhaps, of of not trusting the state. Co- I constantly worry about that. Historically, it has been true. I think I'd argue it's, it's better, significantly better than it's ever been. I can tell you stories about running away from the NF. Where I grew up, there's an NF office on the estate at the top of the road, which is very unfortunate for me. I had a good friend called Gordon and his brother, who used to live in the estate. And they used to take their life in their hands to bring me into their little flat. You know what I mean, and often I'd leave and have to sprint. And so I, I understand it. But things are getting better. And I'd say to people, there's black people who've had really bad experiences. And, and I can't I can't make up for that. I can't tell them they're wrong because they're not. But I would say to everybody, the situation is getting significantly better. And we must and yes, we must work to make it get better, but we mustn't forget the progress we've made as well as why what we've been doing for the last 30 years. You know, you can't just immediately assume that all white people are racist. You can't just tell white people about white privilege. The white boys I grew up with, they have no idea what privilege looks like. None whatsoever. I remember being on a television program, someone trying to tell me off about white privilege, which is strange because I'm not white. But he rang me and he was incandescent about the whole notion of white privilege. Especially because he's been to jail and I haven't. And for him, it's a very personal thing, if if you see what I mean. And I think we need to be careful that the middle class view of the world doesn't give a very different view of how white working class people feel. And I think sometimes a conversation does that and it alienates those people. And why that's important to black people, because generally the white people we work and live with are those people. And we'd like that relationship. But it doesn't. Yeah, I'm from a white working class background, I think. And I don't feel privileged. (laughs) on benefits raised by a very good single mum. But it doesn't do me any harm to be reminded that the black people that I grew up alongside still have a, you know, a different experience to me, that although I didn't start off privileged, my skin colour does mean that there are certain things I have benefited from. Even though I'm near the bottom of the league, I didn't have to worry about being stopped and searched. I don't face racial prejudice in the workplace. All of what you said is correct, except it doesn't mean I should make you feel guilty about that. I should remind you of how I feel about that. The goal is not to make you feel guilty. Guilt very rarely um, inspires the right response, does it? What I'm saying is when we're having a conversation, let's have it in an inclusive manner. Let's not wag the finger and tell people off. Listen, I'm a black man who's been stopped and searched. I've been denied jobs because I'm black. I had a guy tell me in the interview, you have all the qualifications and experience, but I'm not sure your face would fit. Yeah, he told me that in the interview. You know what I mean? He told me that, right? But I, I get it. I, I, I've had people attack me physically a number of times because I'm black. I'm not saying we push it to one side. What I'm saying is we have a conversation that is a healing conversation, not a conversation that drives people to militancy, not a conversation that alienates people because they don't see themselves as having being part of the experience of putting that right. That's all I'm saying. 
everybody knows that black people have suffered from racism. You're gonna need to explain that to me. What I'm interested in, how do we bring everybody on a journey to equality? And how do you bring everyone on a journey to voting conservative in London? There's three things I say to you. London needs a fresh start. Who listening to this doesn't agree that London needs a fresh start? Of course we do. And in order to give London a fresh start, I'm going to make the streets safer with my 8,000 extra police officers that I will be the boss of. The 38 police stations are going to reopen. The fact that I'm going to get 1,000 extra officers to look after the safety of women and girls. If there's one massive failing that Sadiq Khan's made, he said that the streets of London are no longer safe for women and girls. That shame on him. He said it as if it's everybody else's fault. He's got to take responsibility. So I'm going to take care of the policing part. Number two, I'm going to build a second chances fund for all those young people in London whose life may have gone in slightly the wrong direction. I'm going to help them get it back on a straighter now so they can go on and live the life that they want to lead. It won't be a get out of jail free card, but it will be a chance for them to earn qualifications, earn the skills with my support as mayor to get into the workplace, to get into the life they want to do. And of course, I'm going to help the broadest set of Londoners by controlling London's finances properly is a fact that TfL was bankrupt before Corona hit. It is a fact that all of us in London have lost 5.1 billion pounds, sorry, 5.2 billion pounds just on Crossrail alone. In total, actually the mayor wasted 9.56 billion pounds on transport across London. I'm gonna fix those finances so that you can travel to the new home I'm gonna build when I bought 100,000 homes for 100,000 pounds of which you can purchase one just for 100,000 pounds. I'm here to help. I want to push London on. And you know, the best thing is I'm not a politician. I don't particularly care what everybody else is doing except you. I want you to do well. So I'm going to help you do well. You are a politician. And you, should, you shouldn't be afraid of admitting that. Well, well, I play football. Does that make me a premiership footballer? No, you, you, well, no, because you don't play the Premier League, but you are standing to be mayor of London. Let's be clear, if Arsenal, Tottenham or anybody else is listening, I'm, I'm available to play. No, of course you're right, and, and, and I'm being facetious. The, the point is, I just want people to understand I'm not rabid about you know, conservatism or, 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 or right-wing politics. I'm not rabid about all of those things. I always say to people, my favourite uncle is a Labour voter, OK? And my bellwether is the fact that he said to me he feels he can vote for me on this. And, and, and let's be clear, he tells me every time he can't. He says, he, and I, I said, why? He said, because I really do think you're trying to just make life better for people. And if I can keep Uncle Trevor in, in the right place, it tends to mean I'm heading in the right direction. And it goes to my personal philosophy. I don't think any political party or any political philosophy is right about everything. I think when the left are concerned about social housing, when the left are concerned about all those types of things, I'm concerned too. I just think I often have a different answer. And just to bring us back to what we were talking at the start about working class people voting conservative, when Boris won in London, there's this thing called that people refer to as the donut, that he did it by targeting the kind of outer areas. Mm-hmm. You seem to have a different strategy, or am I wrong? I think you're wrong. I'm sorry, sorry. I think you're right. <laughs> I think you're right. The, the, the donut does and doesn't exist. I, I want to be a mayor for all Londoners, which means appealing to everybody. And the donut strategy, I don't know how real it is. I've looked at the figures. I actually don't think it's that real, but some people do. But I'm much more interested in representing all Londoners. So, for instance, I'm having big conversations about the LTNs, right? And they are something really about the centre of London. So that's low-traffic neighbourhoods. Low-traffic neighbourhoods. People are up in arms about low-traffic neighbourhoods. So I've had to say... Against them or in favour of them? 
against them. You, I, people have taken the, the mayor to court. He's lost in court, and instead of accepting that those residents are right, he's now going to appeal. You know, another set of residents are taken to court, as far as I know. But look, I, I want to build a, a policy suite that respects inner London because I used to live in Zone Two. I know what it's like. I now live in Zone Six. I know what that's like. And I want to build a policy suite that respects both inner and outer London. And I don't think I just want to appeal to the donor and I don't just want to appeal inside, I want to appeal across the board. And of course, things like crime, things like housing, things like transport, they're universal. They're not donor issues. The issue in the donor is around transport, let's say, is different to what it is in, in centre of town, you know, but the issue is universal and I will have a universal offer to all of London. This is really making me want a donut now. <laughs> Can I just tell you something? I had an Australian friend visit me and he said to me, he wants to get a taste of Britain. Like he wants to really know what the working classes of Britain do. And I said, at risk of misrepresenting them, I'm going to get you five foodstuffs that represent what it means, right? So we had fish and chips. We had curry. Yes. I took him to the West Indian, right? Because I love planting Akin sawfish. He had that as well. And then for my last two, I was a little bit and I was a little bit at sea and then we walked past I, I, I don't should I name the we walked past the grill. oh yeah name it yeah I walked and there was a fat jam donut in the window and I said to him you know what that jam donut is worth two slots on my list this is what the country's all about and when we were in there and we were buying a donut I was telling him there was a woman behind us and she said I beg to differ I said what do you mean she said you've got to have a Cornish pasty so we bought a donut and a pasty and, and then, then, then since he's been back to Australia he said to me I now understand what, what Britain is doing culinary wise and that those five foods let you know what's going on in Britain don't so you? where was that Greg's yeah Greg what it is oh. nothing better than a jam donut mm. just, just you get all the fancy ones Krispy Kremes and, and they're lovely too but at the end of the day when you're down to your last pound it's Greg's jam donut every time <laughs> John, do you feel um, that you've been able to show yourself off in this race, that you've been able to get across who you are? Because talking to you for this last hour or so feels very different to the to the image of you I've, I've seen perhaps presented in the media. It's been tough for me in the media because, of course, you have Sadiq, who has lots of money and lots of connections, and they paint a picture of you. And people now read one source of media and, and lots of media basically politically campaigns one way or, or, or the other. I think you're correct. It's been tough for me. I'm the little guy. I don't have the money to do the things they do because everybody I meet, bit shocked. Like I, I was in Dagenham. Be the I Tory didn't... candidate. I mean, there's plenty of yeah, Tory but... supporting media out there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But again, but they, they, they are Tory supporting media. That is not Sean supporting media. It's not. It's not letting me be who I am. In that, so people have an expectation if you're one way or the other, and that's what they play out. I, I was in Dagenham. I live near Dagenham now. I was in Dagenham and this guy, like everybody had the, the, he saw the banners and that, and I could see that he wanted to say something. And I could see he didn't have a particularly, he wasn't smiling. So I, I, I sort of drifted away from the crowd. He came across the road and he had, he had so much to say to me, this toy, this toy, that, da, 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 da. But by the end of it, he said to me, I can't believe it, you're a real person. And I, 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 I said, I flip it up, so, do you know what I mean? And he, he said, but it's like, and he, and, he, and then, then he switched to talking about politics. He's no longer talking about me. And he's talking about how comes you don't have more real people in politics. And he said to me, I'm going to support you just because you're a real person. He said, it's not even about the fact that I, that you're a Tory, because I actually vote Labour. But he said, I'm going to, I'm going to support you because you're a real person. And I said to him, 
thank you for that. But I just want you to remember, you can vote any way you like. You don't have to have a traditional voting. The best thing about a democracy, you can go left or right anytime you, you take the feeling. I remember speaking to a committed socialist in, in Shepherd's Bush, and I ended the conversation by saying to him, you probably shouldn't vote for me. And he said, why? I said, because you understand why you don't want to vote for me. And he said, now I am gonna vote for you. And I said, why? He said, because you are giving me the privilege of going one way or the other. And he said to me, if you keep the promises you've made, right, I'll, I'll, I could vote for you again. And that's his real thing, because he said, politicians trick you. I said, I'm not out to trick anyone. He said, if you keep the promises, then I can continue to vote for you. And I said, welcome to Team Bailey. You'll be voting for me for the rest of your life. <laughs> we'll see. Um, do you feel like you've had the full support of the party in this election? The media reports that the Tories are either cut off funding or weren't going to give you more. How did I, that do feel? You, do you know what I love about that notion? The fact that they were giving me any in the first place. <laughs> the way it works in politics, the way it works in mayoral campaigns, um, Steve Norris had to raise all his own money. Boris did. Zach did, and so do I. Actually, the party have been super supportive. None of the, the avatory candidates have had every single cabinet member give them a fundraiser. I have. Every one of them. They've been very supportive. But of course, it goes back to your conversation about are the press supporting you? It's one of the tropes that you know, you know, you 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 paint the you paint the um the the, the my campaign in the light that not even the Tories are supporting the Tory. That's a trope, isn't it? And I remember when it happened the first time, guess who phoned me first? Boris oh, Johnson. Yes, <laughs> Boris was on the phone. He's like, Sean, how are you, son? I said, I, I'm okay, Boris. I'm, I'm not enjoying reading the paper this morning. He said, he, I, I won't use the exact vernacular he used, but let's just say he used some colourful language. And he said, they're, they're morons, Sean. They did exactly the same thing to me in 2006. Ignore them. I'm on your side. Yeah, that's it. And, and I was like, okay, Boris, bye. And he said, bye, Sean. And he put the phone down. Do you know what I mean? And, and that was that. And I had a number of people who, who sit in the Lords call me as well and say, you know, can I help? Would you need all the rest of that? It's just how politics goes. And if someone's here and they're staunch Labour voting and say, no, it ain't. Remember all the dramas that any of your candidates have had. It's just how politics is. What's astonishing about politics is just how quickly people believe things. No test. If, if I came to your front door now and I said, this is the best vacuum cleaner in the world, you say, hold on a minute, give me some proof. In politics, somebody just reads something in the paper and they believe it. You know what? I probably would believe you on the vacuum cleaner. <laughs> but I'm a very gullible guy and I'm on the market for a new vacuum. So you've timed it absolutely right. <laughs> it's a second career for me. Oh, Sean, this has been a real pleasure. Thank you so much. Great to speak to you. Cheers, and, and, mate. And, and it's, it's, been, it's been great fun. It's been great it's fun. It's been really good. Thank you. Well, there you go, Sean Bailey. What a fantastic guest. It'll be fascinating to see what happens in London on May the 6th and elsewhere. I'm going to keep continuing to cover candidates for different officers up and down the country. And of course, after the elections, the political party returns to the stage, as I keep telling you, on the 24th of May at the Garrick Theatre with Peter Mandelson and Saeed Avarsi. On the 25th of May at the Garrick Theatre with Keir Starmer and Andrea Leadsom. And on the 2nd of June at the Vaudeville Theatre with Jess Phillips and Esther McVeigh. So hopefully I'll see you at one or more of those. Have a great weekend and I'll see you soon. Ta-ra. 